This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Neglected diseases and drugs to counter addiction represent unmet medical needs, but they've been areas that pharmaceutical companies have been reluctant to pursue. Savant HWP is in clinical development on an experimental drug that targets both of these indications. We spoke to Stephen Hurst, CEO of Savant HWP, about the company's strategy, the unique compound that can address two seemingly unrelated indications and the role priority review vouchers can play in providing drug developers with incentives to pursue indications that might otherwise be ignored. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Savant HWP, its strategy for developing needed therapies for neglected diseases and drug addiction, and the role incentives play in in making such a strategy viable. Savant HWP is an unusual name. What does the HWP stand for, and does this reflect your strategy in any way? It does. It, It actually stands for health, wellness, and prevention. So if you're going to put Savant together with health, wellness, and prevention, it explains our tagline, which is knowing health, knowing wellness, and knowing prevention. And it reflects our technology and disease agnostic approach in evaluating potential new medicines for us to develop. Well, you're working in both neglected disease and addiction. These are two areas that the drug industry has been slow to invest in. How difficult is it to find drug development, to fund drug development in, in this area? Well, it's extremely challenging, and I think that the risk aversion that the multinational pharmaceutical companies um, have used in evaluating addiction medicine or neglected diseases is appropriate for their businesses. And what was needed, and the reason for our business model is, someone needed to come in to attract a limited amount of capital to de-risk projects in these areas, and that is the, the raison d'etre for Savant HWP. We work in the preclinical through human proof of concept area in the development of new medicines. We don't do discovery work. We have no desire to be a, a commercialization or a sales company. Our focus is strictly on what we feel is the greatest part of the value change in terms of the effectiveness of dollars spent. Our projects are designed to fail early and fail cheap if they're going to fail at all, which means that we want things to be successful. We want to spend our time and money on things that have the potential to be successful, and we want to create 
create a compelling data package to show to a multinational pharmaceutical company that will give them the comfort to know that they're taking on a project in a very challenging area with the highest probability of success. We've seen the creation of priority review vouchers as an incentive to get drug developers to invest in rare and neglected diseases. Can you explain what a priority review voucher is? Priority review vouchers were, were first enacted in, in about 2007-2008 timeframe, and I don't remember the exact date. The idea of it was to provide an economic incentive for drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, to develop products in areas that did not have robust markets for those products. So in particular, we're looking at uh, neglected tropical diseases, and there's a list now, I think, of 18 neglectable tropical diseases that you can work in. And there's also rare pediatric diseases, which have very small patient numbers. Both of those areas are eligible for a priority review voucher, which basically is a golden ticket at the FDA that can be applied to any other project pending before FDA to give that medicine an opportunity to get an early and a quick review if it does not otherwise qualify for priority review or accelerated review at FDA. These vouchers have become tremendously valuable because they can be sold. So a number of companies, at least six companies at this point, have received priority vouchers over the last couple of years. And the first one was sold for around $67 million. The last one that was reported was about nine, ten months ago, sold for about $350 million. The idea, the reason why they're valuable is if you're in a very competitive arena like hepatitis C drug development, for example, where there's potentially a very large market out there and a six-month loss in your time to market, which is trimmed off by a priority review voucher for a product, will give you the opportunity to, to have sales for six months that you wouldn't otherwise have had. And I use hep C because the first hep C drug that was approved, its first quarter of sales sold about $2 billion worth of drugs. You can see we're spending you know, $350 million to get six months taken off of your approval period could be incredibly valuable to a pharmaceutical company. How, how does the industry or investors look at the value of these? I think it's pretty much been a, a but, uh, what would I call it, a free market or, or uh, a market that is completely elastic. It's simply been a willing seller and a willing buyer establishing the market. Now, I, I did speak with Henry Grabowski, who's a health economist at Duke. He was one of the principal designers of the Priority Review Program. And the economic analysis that they did at Duke projected that these things might have a value at the end of the day of around $150 million in a free, you know, arm's length exchange. Obviously, they far exceeded that expectation with, as I said, one selling within the last year for $350 million. Uh, it really does come down to willing seller, willing buyer, what will the market bear? I think that there's an ongoing effort for people to obtain priority vouchers. 
and potentially create an auction environment where they have multiple pharmaceutical companies that are bidding in order to obtain a particular priority review voucher. I don't know where the market's going to go in the future. I don't see it cooling down anytime soon. You recently sold your Chagas disease program to Calabias. To what extent do you think that transaction was driven by the potential for a priority review voucher? I think that that had an awful lot to do with why a project that we had had in-house since 2011 suddenly became a desirable project. I think the priority review voucher really has done its job in terms of creating that kind of interest on the part of investors in taking on something like Chagas disease. Chagas is a very small market in the United States. It has the potential to be a larger one, but it will take some work to identify the patient. When Chagas disease was put on the list of eligible diseases in August, that's when our program really started to get attention from potential acquirers or forward development partners. You're also developing a drug for leishmaniasis. What, what is leishmaniasis? Uh, leishmaniasis is another neglected tropical disease. It, it is global. It comes in three different forms. It's caused by, like Chagas disease, a trypanosomal parasite. In this case, the, the parasite is uh, transmitted from the bite of a sand fly, and it's transmitted into the blood of, uh, of a human through the sand fly bite. It's a protozoa. Uh, and it can do one of three things depending on the uh, subspecies of leishmaniasis, protozoa that's causing the disease, and other factors. It can cause the most prevalent form, which is cutaneous leishmaniasis, which are, are very uh, almost like a black crust type of a growth on the skin. They can be confined to small areas, but can also, for example, potentially take the whole side of someone's face or an arm or part of a limb and disfigure it uh, a great deal. It can be painful uh, and, and certainly uh, potentially debilitating. Rarely life-threatening, however. There is a, a coastal form of the disease and there's a visceral form of the disease as well. Both of those can be potentially life-threatening. The mucosal form can make it very painful for people to eat or drink. And the uh, uh, intestinal form of the disease uh, can actually be uh, fatal and often is. We have a number of global trends that are changing the geographic range for these neglected tropical diseases. Do you see this at all changing the value proposition of these drugs? I think it definitely changes the, the value proposition. What we're seeing is the movement of the causative agent out of the, the tropical or subtropical regions of the world and moving into what in the past have been fairly temperate regions. Chagas, the parasite that causes Chagas disease, is actually endemic in the lower two-thirds of the United States, essentially from coast to coast. But we do not tend to sleep and live in the conditions that promote Chagas infection following uh, contact with the vector, which is actually something called the kissing bug. And we're very fortunate in that way that we don't have a lot of primary cases in the United States. But the incidence of primary cases of Chagas disease has picked up just in the last few years. 
Up until 2012, there were maybe a dozen reported cases of primary shotgun infection in the United States, and all of, of the medical records uh, on such things. And then in 2012 alone, there were 16 primary cases of the disease. So we know that the potential is there, that it's a growing concern. And we see the same thing with other tropical diseases. We may see uh, it, it come to our shores in terms of leishmaniasis as well. We know that malaria is becoming uh, potentially more of an issue in the southern part of the United States, areas that are subtropical in Florida, and areas of Texas along the Gulf Coast and the like. And what's going to happen with global climate change is that as areas warm up, it's going to allow the spread of the vector into an environment that's conducive to their breeding. We're going to see that with multiple tropical diseases going forward. And that does then create a market for medicine in parts of the world that are better able to pay, like Europe and North America. Your experimental drug for leishmaniasis is known as 18MC, which you're also developing to treat addiction. From a medical point of view, what is addiction? Addiction is a brain disease. It is a dysregulation of a neurotransmitter called dopamine in the reward centers of the brain, which are, are focused in the midbrain of a human being or a mammalian brain. There are neuronal projections into the frontal cortex, which what account for your sensation of pleasure and your awareness of pleasure. But the disease itself is a dysregulation that is not easily reversed of dopamine in the midbrain reward centers, and that is the disease of addiction. Where are you in, in terms of clinical development at this point? The drug 18-methoxycornaridine, or 18-MC, clearly you see why we shorten it. 18-MC is in the early stages of human clinical development. We've done the what we call the first in human testing of the drug in normal healthy volunteers to evaluate the safety of the, of the drug, not the effectiveness of the drug. We have more human safety studies that we need to conduct before we can start working in patients. And that work will probably take us another one to two years. And then we expect to go into addicted patients. We haven't made a final decision as to what type of substance use we will start with. The challenge of 18MC and the promise of 18MC are exactly the same thing. The promise is that this is a drug that works at the cause of addiction, the disease in the midbrain, appears to reset the dopamine regulation within a normal, normal range in the midbrain. We see this in all of these mammalian animal models that we test the drug, and we hope that it will do the same thing in human beings that have addiction. The challenge is that because it goes to the central cause of the disease, it appears to work regardless of what the addiction is, whether it's nicotine or alcohol or opiate, cocaine, methamphetamine, we even have data in some obesity models, some compulsive eating models in animals that suggest that this dysregulation of dopamine 
part of all of these types of compulsive behaviors or addictive behaviors. And that challenge is, where do we start? What's the first thing that we start testing in terms of addiction? Is it tobacco? Is it alcohol? Is it cocaine? Those decisions will be made over the course of the next couple of years as we complete the safety testing. Well, given the approach is being focused on dysregulation of dopamine, how broad a market potential does this have? Well, I think you just have to look at, at the nature of, of addiction as a health risk. So let's take a look at the U.S. market and, and break it down by substance. There's more than 30 million smokers in the United States that have tried to quit and have been unable to quit. Those are potential patients for ACMs. There are 17 million heavy drinkers that actually don't have control over their drinking case. That's a potential patient population for ACMs. There are several million opiate abusers, both heroin and prescription opiates. That's a potential patient population that it help. There's a half a million people that have a cocaine substance use disorder. 18MC could potentially help them. If 18MC were expanded into compulsive eating and obesity and was effective in that area, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would say there's probably another potentially 30, 60 million patients just in the U.S. alone. And then to give you some sense of how large the market could be worldwide, <clears throat> there's 300 million smokers in China. And last year, the Chinese government identified smoking as a as a national problem and a health risk and a priority as a health risk. So the potential for drugs like ATMZ that actually treat the cause of addiction and give people, hopefully, uh, the help they need to be able to resist the compulsion, not have the compulsion, not have the craving, be able to you know, walk away from the cigarettes or the alcohol or the opiate. Uh, the potential is, is pretty vast. I actually believe that addiction is the largest unmet medical need in the world. I think it even exceeds diabetes. How do you end up with a drug that treats uh, neglected tropical disease, but also addiction broadly? Interestingly enough, uh, it, it makes sense in the following context. 18MC is part of a medicinal chemistry program, but it's based on studying a natural compound called ibogaine. And ibogaine is extracted from the bark of a of, of bush that grows in Western Africa. It's been used for centuries by West African tribesmen uh, in modest doses to maintain alertness on hunt trails, in higher doses as part of, of spiritual ceremony. Ibogaine is a Schedule One drug in the United States, meaning no one has access to it unless it's through strict control through the government for experimentation only. You cannot get it approved as a drug in the United States. It's hallucinogenic, and that is the reason why it's a Schedule One drug. Ibogaine was shown to have 
uh, significant potential in addiction in the 50s and 60s when people were experimenting with psychedelic drugs. They also experimented with natural compounds like Ibogaine and ayahuasca and psilocybin. Some heroin addicts took Ibogaine, went off and basically had an Ibogaine experience for a, a couple of days and came off of that experience not craving heroin, not having used it in several days, having no physical withdrawal, no psychological withdrawal symptoms. So people began to use Ibogaine as a way of helping people, uh, if you will, overcome their addiction. Again, not available as a medicine. Now, where's the tropical disease component, the Leishmaniasis component? Because it's a plant-derived uh, uh, compound, it has a backbone structure called a coronaridine backbone structure. And it turns out that coronaridine is a backbone structure in other compounds that have been identified as having medicinal value and are known as phytopharmaceuticals. An investigator in Brazil who got his PhD studying coronaridine requested a small sample of 18MC from the uh, inventor a number of years ago to test in a Leishmaniasis model because he had looked at coronaridine and saw that coronaridine appeared to be an anti-Leishmanial compound. When he tested 18MC, he got even better results than he had gotten with the coronaridine compound itself. And that's how it was discovered that 18MC is effective as an anti-Leishmanial compound, as well as being effective as an anti-addiction compound. And the mechanisms of action, what actually makes it work as a medicine, are completely different in the Leishmaniasis case than in the addiction case. In the past, you've been able to fund development of 18MC to treat addiction, in part through government funding. My sense is while there's greater government attention to the problem today, funding has been drying up. What's happening in that regard? Well, I think that, that we're in a situation where you know government funding has a lot of competition for each dollar. There are uh, multiple, multiple projects in academia and in the private sector that could benefit from government funding. And there's, frankly, many more projects with merit than there are dollars. Uh, we were very fortunate to get a very large grant from the government in 2012. We got almost a $7 million grant from the government to help us in the development of HMP to get it into our first patient study. I think that, that there's a lot of politics around giving significant amounts of money like that to a single development program like HMC. And as I said, I think we were very lucky to get the funding that we did get. It was merited and it was important and it helped us advance the project. But I think that, that, you know, because of the politics that goes on with the dispersion of government funds, uh, something having merit does not necessarily mean that it's going to get the funding. And I think that what's going on in the area of addiction right now is it's become uh, certainly a crisis in the Northeast Corridor that we use out all the time. It's actually, I think, there's a strong argument that uh, heroin has become, uh, once again, a national problem, and it's not simply a 
uh, a problem in impoverished communities. We're seeing more and more people uh, finding their way to heroin because it's far less expensive than prescription drugs, for example, and they're uh, dealing with their habits developed through prescription drug use uh, by moving over to heroin. But there are many, many ideas of how to address the problem. There's probably as many ideas as there are physicians and, and politicians in terms of what the appropriate funding is. A lot more attention. I think we're going to do well with AMC going forward because people are recognizing, I think, at last that it's a disease, not a question of will. If you have the disease, all the willpower in the world is not going to help you to get better. Uh, it will take a tremendous amount of support to overcome any addiction, both in the form of medication, potentially uh, if you have some kind of a, a co-morbidity issue, co-diagnosis, as many people with addiction have, they have underlying problems in terms of bipolar disorder or borderline schizophrenia, things like that. Uh, it takes a lot of care to, to get someone past their, their issue. We think AT&MC will help in that area, but I would caution anyone from thinking that it's necessarily going to be a magic bullet and you're going to be able to take a single tablet of AT&MC and, and cure your addiction. That's not the way we see the drug. We see it as being a significant improvement in the care of the addicted patient and giving them an opportunity to regain control over the behavior. Uh, that isn't otherwise available to them today. At this point, how far do you expect to take it through development before licensing it? As I said, our business plan has as an objective creating a compelling data package that we put in front of much larger, much better funded pharmaceutical companies that would have the wherewithal to take the drug into pivotal clinical studies, phase three clinical studies they're known as, which tend to be large and rather expensive. We will take it through what's called a phase 2B study, which is demonstrating with statistical significance that the drug is not only safe for a patient, but also is effective. But that study would not be enough to gain approval at the FDA of the drug. Very few drugs have ever been approved phase 2B data. It has happened, but it's very rare and it's a very compelling case. Do, do we have the, the potential to take this into phase 3 ourselves? I, I find it to be an enormous amount of work to raise capital for the development of new medicines today. And I think we'll be doing well to raise the perhaps $50 million to complete the program through phase 2A or 2B. Uh, human proof of concept will be very lucky to, to raise that capital without having to take on raising 10 times that much to get a, a solid approval package together for the FDA. Stephen Hurst, CEO of Savant HWP. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. It's a pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, 
Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.